Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Today on New Books in Language, I talked to Bart Hertz of Radboud University Nijmegen about his book, Quantity Implicatures. The book discusses some of the most active current research topics in theoretical and experimental semantics and pragmatics, and argues on both grounds in favour of a classical pragmatic or Gricean account of implicatures. In this interview, we first consider what all this means, both literally and figuratively. We then turn to some of the more technical aspects of this work, including the appeal of the alternative conventionalist account of implicature and the merits of an intention-based rather than utterance-based version of the Gricean view. We discuss how these competing theories might be evaluated and we consider what data and what theoretical developments might contribute to the pragmatic state of the art. My guest today is about Hertz and we're talking about his recent book, Quantity Implicatures, which is a very illuminating discussion of some hot topics in semantics and pragmatics. But how did you come to write this book? Uh, well, I've, I've been uh, interested in this general topic since uh, since the last century, really. Uh, I think the, the first time I, I wrote a paper on this was in the late 90s. This kind of theme has been worrying me uh, ever since. Um, and at some point I decided that I should do something about it. Uh, and then I started to to uh, put things together that I had, had uh, done uh, over the past decade or so. Um, and that's that resulted in, in the book. And throughout, you're essentially arguing in favour of a fairly uh, traditional pragmatic Christian analysis against what you see as certain uh, trends that might be compromising or not particularly uh, contributing to the understanding of these phenomena. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's, so in that sense, it's a bit conservative. But in, in I mean, in a broader uh, scheme of things, it's... Uh, um, well, it's not revolutionary, but it goes back to, to to ideas that have been around since the 1960s or so. Yeah, that's true. Now, as you point out early on, the kind of pragmatic enrichment that you're talking about in this book is particularly associated with the work of Paul Grice, but the right. observations about it go back a lot further, don't they? Yeah, the whole issue is uh, goes back to Aristotle in a sense. Um, uh, who, who, I mean, since Aristotle, philosophers and logicians have been arguing, especially about the uh, the meanings of of little words like "may," as uh, John may be at home now, uh, or uh, necessary, or it's certain that, and so on. So there has been a lot of of debate amongst philosophers. Uh, about the actual meaning of these words, and that's in a sense that those are the historical roots uh, of this book too, or more generally of the research tradition that I work in. So the issue is the issue is is this: um, uh, if I say John may be at home, um, I'm clearly conveying that I'm not sure that he is at home, um, and the, the, the old the age old issue has been. Uh, where this this information comes from. Is it part of the word may, that is to say, is it part of the lexical meaning of the word that if I say may, that, I, that, that I'm conveying that, that I'm not sure, or does it have a different source? Um, and this, uh, this worry, uh, so what the worry takes the form, uh, what exactly is the meaning of, the word, of a word like may, um, uh, this this worry has been going on for for two millennia basically, but the real alternative to this to the view that uh, that we talk that we're looking at a, at a meaning component of the word may only became available with the work of Paul Grice. Uh, and basic the basic idea that he had was was really very simple. He said, uh, well, the word may doesn't imply that you're not sure. Uh, that's not part of its lexical meaning. Uh, so then the question is where does this this uh, this inference comes come from? Um, and his argument was really very simple. He said, if I say or if a speaker says uh, John may be at home, then he could have said something stronger. He could have said 
uh, I'm sure that, that John is home. Or I, 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 he could have said, um, John must be at home now. Um, and since he didn't do that, it's probably not the case that he has evidence for the stronger, for the stronger claim. Right? So on the basis of the observation that the speaker could have made a stronger claim, uh, the hearer is entitled to infer uh, that, the that as far as, as the speaker knows, uh, the stronger claim isn't true. Uh, and this basic idea generalizes to other, to other uh, uh, words, uh, so-called scalar expressions, uh, which have the same sort of logical behavior. So if I say, Mary ate some of the cookies, uh, that in itself doesn't imply that she didn't eat all of the cookies. And that's not part of the literal meaning of the word some. Uh, rather, the idea is that... Uh, if I say Mary ate some of the cookies, I could have made a stronger claim. I could have said Mary ate all of the cookies. Um, and since I didn't do that, the hero is entitled to infer uh, that uh, as far as I know, the stronger claim isn't true. Hence, you get the inference that according to the speaker, Mary didn't eat all of the cookies. In, in a nutshell, that's the, the, the pragmatic or Gricean view on uh, on the interpretation of, of words like some and may and so on. You make the point that the um, analysis that you sketched there was actually uh, made almost in passing by John Stuart Mill writing in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, why do you suppose it is that that insight didn't get developed upon or built on until Grice came along? I think Grice was, was the, the first one uh, to really see the potential of this analysis. I think uh, people like John Stuart Mill uh, basically didn't care. John Stuart Mill uh, was, was part of a tradition that was primarily interested in the logic of words, uh, that is to say, in the literal meaning. So they were interested in the literal meanings of words like or, some, all, and so on. Uh, and they weren't, they weren't really interested in the pragmatics per se. So he, he basically had this, this insight, and, and as far as I know, the, the insight may be even older, I don't know. Um, but he wasn't interested in, in the pragmatic explanation um, as such. And the, and the first one to take an, an active interest in pragmatics was, was Christ. Um, and for him, it was the, the, the basis, the, this simple observation was the basis for um, uh, for a rather elaborate theory of pragmatics, which was which was much which range much ranges much farther than anything that uh, that people than people like uh, John Stuart Mill dreamt of. And in uh, chapter two, when you present, as you described, the standard recipe for quantity implicatures, right. you're drawing quite heavily on that uh, on that Gricean analysis. Aren't yes, you? yes, I think that. The way people have been using these Gricean ideas, and there have, I mean, there have been many since the 70s. There have been many theories of uh, uh, of implicature that uh, along broadly Gricean lines. And I think that at some point, although the inspiration was clearly uh, came from Grice's work, uh, at some point uh, some linguists got the whole thing a bit backward. Uh, and in a sense, the way I presented it just now. Uh, got it backward in exactly the same way. Um, so the, the, what I said was the following. If you hear a sentence like, Mary ate some of the cookies, uh, you ask yourself, uh, why didn't the speaker make a stronger claim? Why didn't he say, Mary ate all of the cookies? And then you conclude that, uh, as far as the speaker knows, the stronger claim is not true. So, uh, and that's basically what I call the standard recipe. That's not the, the original Gricean version, but that's what, ma what linguists made of it. And what distinguishes it from, from Grice's own account is that the hearer is supposed to start by observing that the speaker could have made a stronger claim. And in a sense, that's a weird thing to do. It's a weird thing to do because... Why should the speaker worry, or why should the hearer worry uh, about things the speaker could have said? The, the hearer is supposed to be interested in what the speaker believes, in what the speaker wants of him, and so on. Why worry about what the speaker could have said? Uh, and that's um, the point that I'm arguing for in, in the first part of the book, is that we should rearrange things a little bit uh, 
And so that the, in, in a sense, the ingredients of the story remain the same. But in, instead of starting by uh, worrying about uh, what the speaker uh, should, could have said or should have said, um, I believe we should start by asking ourselves, or uh, let the hearer ask himself um, what the speaker's beliefs are and what the speaker's intentions and desires are. Uh, and that's what I call, let's say, the, the, uh, the intentional. You should, you should put the, intent, the speaker's mental state first. Uh, and reason on, and on the basis of those, reason to uh, to a conclusion about what he wants and so on. So, how uh, how widespread are the differences that are predicted by uh, taking an approach based on mental states and uh, intent, the intentional stances you describe it, uh, from applying the standard recipe or trying to apply the standard recipe? Uh, for the for the the cases that for most of the cases that have been discussed in the literature, the difference doesn't really matter. Um, the, uh, things get get more do get more interesting when you look at other cases of uh, of implicature, um, and that's that's what I try to show in in, the, in uh, later chapters in the book. So it, uh, for the cases that that we've been discussing so far, it doesn't make a difference at all. I mean, you get you get your predictions, you get the correct predictions either way, uh, and it doesn't really matter. It does make a difference when you go to cases that have received rather less attention in lit literature. And the most interesting case, to my mind, is so-called free choice permission. Uh, free choice permission has to do with the interpretation of uh, sentences with or in it. So th these are called disjunctions in, uh, in semantics and pragmatics. And an example would be uh, you can have an apple or a pear. Uh, intuitively, it's quite clear that if I tell you you can have an apple or a pear, then you can choose. That is to say, you can you can either take an apple or you can take a pear, or perhaps both. But it's the the choice is yours. So if I if I utter this sentence, uh, I allow you to take an apple, and I am allowing allowing you to take a pear, but not perhaps both. And this is actually a puzzling inference, um, and and people have been slow to realize that it's that it's problematic, and that we don't that it doesn't really follow uh, logically from what you're saying. There's a very strong tendency to make this inference, and in in, in most cases, I'm sure uh, that the inference is intended by the speaker. But until very recently, um, it wasn't at all clear where this inference comes from. And according to uh, the theory that I develop in the book, um, this, theory, this uh, inference is a pragmatic inference too, and it's basically of the same kind as the, the kind of inference that I've, that I've been talking about before. So th the reasons why you make this inference, uh, in my account, are basically the same as the, reasons, as the reason why you uh, infer not all from some. And for this part of the story, it's, uh, it's crucial that you, you uh, combine your, the ingredients of your story in the right way, uh, and it's, it's crucial that you start with the speaker's intentions and not with uh, uh, things that he could have said. I'd like to check back, if I may, to uh, chapter two, because the intentional stances you discuss in your book uh, and the standard recipe both stand in some kind of opposition to the alternative approaches yes. that have gained some traction recently. Yes. Uh, you make in particular in chapter two first the point that there's a distinction between weak and strong implicatures, which uh -huh. is borne out on on these accounts, but which isn't really captured in the uh, the alternative accounts. I wonder if perhaps you could say a little about that. Okay, so uh, a, a very clear example of a weak implicature would be the case of disjunction. So if I say, for instance, um, uh, Fred is in Amsterdam or in Berlin, I'm clearly implying that I don't know where he is. I'm just I'm saying that he is in that he must be in one of the of, of these two places. Uh, but there's, an, there's clearly uh, an implication or a strong suggestion uh, that I don't know uh, whether he is in Amsterdam and I don't know whether he is in Berlin. Uh, and this is an implicature too. Uh, and it, this, is, this is widely accepted. And, and the reasoning goes as, is very similar to the, the cases that we looked at before. Uh, if a speaker says uh, Fred uh, is in Amsterdam or Berlin, he could have made a stronger claim. He could have said, 
Fred is in Amsterdam. So you're asking yourself, why didn't he do that? And the, the, a plausible answer to that question is that he doesn't have evidence for the stronger claim. Uh, so that's where your inference comes from. And the same goes for the second half of the of the sentence, so uh, for the part which says that he that he is in Berlin. And that's a weak implicature. Right? The, the weak implicature is has the form, the speaker is not in a position to make the stronger claim. Yeah, in this case, the stronger one of the stronger claims would be Fred is in Amsterdam, and the other stronger claim is Fred um, uh, is in Berlin. So the effect yes. is, is that you infer that the speaker doesn't know whether the stronger claim is true. In the cases that we started with, so if, if I have an example, if you take an example like uh, Mary ate some of the cookies, in many cases you can can infer that that according to the speaker she didn't eat all of the cookies. So there it is. It's um, it's not just that the speaker doesn't know, right, but he also uh, conveys the information that he has evidence to show that the stronger claim is actually false, and that's a strong implicature. The the theories that that you've been uh, that you refer to uh, in your question are able to uh, to derive these these uh, these strong implicatures, but. Uh, uh, for technical reasons that perhaps we shouldn't go into, they are not in a position to derive this, the weaker implicatures. So there's a clear asymmetry there. On the account that I propose, on the other hand, is this this pragmatic uh, account. Weak and strong implicatures, in a sense, go together. Right? The idea is that when you're deriving uh, an implicature like like this, you always start by deriving a weak implicature. So that's an implicature of the form. The speaker doesn't have evidence for the stronger claim. And then the stronger implicature is derived from that in a second step. And that gets you to the implicature of the form. Uh, the speaker has evidence that the stronger claim is actually false. So these, are, these, these, these two inferences generally go together. Uh, and what we see in disjunction is that you only make the first step. And in the case of disjunction, so Fred is in, in Amsterdam or Berlin, you only get the weak implicature, uh, but you do, in those cases you don't um, derive the stronger implicature because that would give you weird results. So if I if you had a if you have a sentence like Fred is in Amsterdam or Berlin, and you would derive the strong implicature, you would get um, the speaker uh, believes that Fred is not in Amsterdam, and the speaker believes that Fred is not in Berlin, uh, and that's clearly a wrong result, and, and that in and and in fact. If you derive that inference, it makes it, it implies that the speaker speaker's utterance doesn't make sense at all, and that's probably why you don't derive it. Okay, so you have a, a, an integrated story uh, of how implicatures um, arise in several cases, which which crucially hinges about on this distinction between um, weak and strong implicatures, and that that kind of distinction is not available to uh, alternative theories about these these semantic and pragmatic phenomena. And in unifying the approach of these theories, you uh, rely on the heuristic, if you like, of inference to the best explanation, right. which is something you, you point out is inevitable, but at the same time has been uh, challenged on maybe intuitive grounds as being too strong. Is that is that a fair assessment? I'm not sure that I agree with the last part because um, there are problems with um, maybe I should say first I should say a bit more about what inference to the best explanation is inference to the exp best explanation is the philosopher's term for what in everyday life we call diagnosis so if a doctor diagnoses a, pre uh, a patient so suppose that a patient has fever and red spots in the face and so on, then uh, the doctor will arrive at some sort of explanation. Uh, and the explanation is of the form, uh, is of the following form. Uh, the doctor jumps to the conclusion that if, this, if, if the patient had this particular disease, uh, for instance, measles, then we would see uh, the phenomena that, actually, that we actually observe and if that's the best explanation that the, the doctor can think of, then that's the, the one that he will go with. Inference to the best explanation in these cases takes you from the effects that you observe 
two possible causes. And that's the, the, the possible causes that you assume, that's your diagnosis. And a car mechanic does the same when he's working on a car that, that doesn't really, that doesn't run or whatever. Uh, and Grice's idea is that uh, heroes basically are doing the same thing. Uh, so they are, they are in, from a logical point of view, they are engaged in, in the same sort of game that uh, a doctor or a car mechanic would be involved in. That is to say, they observe a certain behavior. The speaker says something, he does something, he performs a linguistic act. And then uh, what the hero does is basically is trying to diagnose this, uh, this behavior. Right? Or why is the speaker saying what he's saying? Right? Why does he put it this way? Why does he make this claim and so on at this particular point in the discourse? And the implicatures, so the pragmatic inferences that I've been talking about all the time, those are really the outcome of this diagnosis. The speaker makes a certain claim. You start reasoning about uh, what could uh, be behind that claim. What, what is it that he must be thinking uh, in order for him to make this claim? Uh, and the result that you end up with is a kind of diagnosis of the speaker's behavior. And that's basically um, uh, your pragmatic inferences. So that's what's called uh, inference to the best explanation or abduction in, uh, in philosophical circles. As far as I can see, that's just what pragmatic inferences are like. That's the logic of pragmatic inferences, according to Grice. And I think it's a very plausible story about how uh, at least some pragmatic inferences work. There is... Uh, a problem with this, and that's that's of a technical nature, and that's that in, uh, uh, unlike other forms of reasoning, we don't understand very well at this point in time how how these inferences work. We have logical theories about deduction, the kind of logical reasoning that goes on in in mathematics, for instance, uh, and there are well developed and well understood theories about that sort of uh, reasoning. Um, but we don't have very good theories about abduction, i.e. Uh, inference to the best explanation. So we generally don't understand very well what diagnosis is and how it works. And the fact that we don't have a, a well-developed theory of, uh, uh, of, of that sort of inference uh, has given abduction and inference to the best explanation a bit of a bad name. But basically, what it boils boils down to is is that we don't really know what it uh, we don't have very good theories about it. But that doesn't um, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It does seem to exist, and we seem to be using it all the time. One approach to constraining, I think, this kind of reasoning is uh, is that of uh, scalar implicatures where applicable, which is a topic you turn to in chapter three. Right. Uh, I take it that although in chapter two you refer to the uh, what you see is the undesirability of treating scalar implicatures as a too much of a special case. Nevertheless, you devote a certain amount of attention to them, particularly, presumably, because they've been so much discussed lately. Right. Yeah, I think what, what has happened is a lot of the debate is about very simple sentences, sentences like Mary ate some of the cookies. And I think that many people working on, on this type of, uh, of sentence the the problem is how how can we explain that a sentence like this comes to imply that Mary didn't eat all of the cookies? That seems like a very simple problem, uh, and for many researchers, it's also clear that this is a very strong inference, and they have a, they they have this this intuition that the source of the inference is really the word some, uh, and they, they, there's this intuition that uh, it is this particular word. That gives rise to the inference that Mary didn't eat all of the cookies. And that gets you back to the problem that I started out with. So this, this problem that goes back to, uh, to Aristotle. There's, been, there's always been a very strong tendency to assume that some really means some but not all. That this is part of the lexical content of the word. And that's precisely what I'm, what I'm denying. Uh, I'm saying this... this uh, this not all part is really a pragmatic inference, and it's it's not part of the meaning of the word. It's not part of the it's it's not in the lexicon. 
What you see in the linguistic literature on scalar implicatures is that in some way or other, people have been trying uh, to put back this inference, so this not all inference, to put it back into the linguistic system. If not into the lexicon, then at least into the grammar, so that in effect it becomes part of the linguistic conventions that underlie a language like English. So uh, if that's right, then, then it would be the case that uh, this, this inference from, from some to not all is not a pragmatic inference after all, but has to do with conventions of language. Uh, and that was the original idea in the first place. I mean, for a very long time in history, logicians have been assuming, or many logicians have been assuming, that some means some but not all. And you see it even in those uh, in those theories which are which are inspired by Grice, but then try to make this inference more precise. And what you see is that in the process of doing that, it very much looks as if this inference. Uh, has become a conventional inference again. That is to say, has become part of the linguistic system. And that's what this, this chapter about uh, scalar implicatures is about, to show that the, there are these, these tendencies, in effect, to return to, to the old position that scalar inferences are part of the language and not part of the, the pragmatic reasoning that, uh, that heroes engage in. What for you is the crucial diagnostic of something being part of the conventions versus being part of the pragmatics? Well, the, the, uh, I think the, the, the clearest um, indicator of this is the fact that uh, everything you, that is part of the linguistic system, so everything that's, that's in the lexicon, that's part of the meaning of a word, for instance, or that's part of the meaning of a grammatical construction, that's something that the speaker is absolutely committed to. So, um, so it's it's not something that he can retract. Uh, so, if I say Fred is a bachelor, then I'm uh, implying that he is uh, uh, that he's not married, and this is clearly part of the meaning of the word bachelor. And that's why you cannot retract it. You cannot say something like uh, Fred is a bachelor, and in but in fact he's married. That doesn't make sense at all. That's that's a straightforward contradiction, and that's because the the second part of the utterance denies something that follows from the literal meaning of the first part. The interesting thing about uh, scalar implicatures is that they are retractable or cancelable, as it's uh, uh, sometimes called. So I can say th- something like, uh, "Mary ate some of your cookies," and in fact, she ate all. That's a coherent. Uh, sequence of uh, of statements, uh, and it shows that there's not all part which is, uh, or there's not all inference with, which is typically associated, or in some cases at least is associated with some, uh, can be retracted. So that's that kind of observation. That, that's the kind of observation that that suggests that there is something something else going on. That it's not part of the not not part of the literal meaning of of the sentence. It's not contributed by the word as such, but this inference arises in a different way. And actually, this is the, this is the kind of dialectic which underlies this whole discussion. I mean, on, on the face of it, we're, we're dealing with rather marginal examples, but the, the whole discussion is about the interaction uh, or the division of labor between the, the, the language, the linguistic system on the one hand, uh, and pragmatic reasoning on the other. Turning back to scalar implicatures, you um, set out in chapter three also to characterize more precisely the notion of a scale or yes. possibly a set. Uh, what does the original definition lack in your view? Well, the, the, the idea is very, the, the idea is as follows. So to take an example with some again. So, so uh, as the scale that's, that some belongs to is, uh, is a list of words. That increase in strength. So the, the the scale for some would be something like some, many, most, all. These are so-called uh, quantifying determiners. They all have the same syntactic and semantic status uh, as the word some, but they increase in strength. Many is stronger than some. Uh, most is stronger than many, uh, and all is stronger stronger than most. 
And the idea is, uh, and this is an idea that goes back to, to Larry Horn's dissertation of 1972, the idea is that uh, apart from uh, the lexicon, which gives a certain meaning to these words, uh, there's also something like these, this scale which is involved in the interpretation of a sentence that uh, contains one of these expressions. So the, the Horn's idea is that uh, uh, when you see a sentence with which uh, the word some occurs, uh, then you activate uh, what you know about the meaning of the word, but you also activate the scale, and the scale uh, tells you Look, there's a strong. There are a number of words that are stronger than some that could have been used in this situation. So you should ask yourself why that didn't happen. And the problem with this is, um, I mean, it, basically the idea is, is uh, I, I think, clearly inspired by by Grice's work, uh, and I I I, I, agree, I agree with the basic idea. But the problem is, or the, the the question is, where do these scales come from? And, uh, and again, it looks as if uh, researchers have been assuming that scales are part of the language system in some way or other. We, don't, we do not only have a lexicon and a grammar, but we also have these scales. And some researchers say explicitly that, that, they, uh, that they have to be stipulated as part of the linguistic system. They are somehow given to us. So uh, the way... Scales have been have been used in the literature is, um, as I said before, it's basically it can be viewed as an attempt to turn these these pragmatic inferences into linguistic inferences again. And that brings us back to the original discussion between uh, linguistic and pragmatic views uh, on the meaning of on the meanings of these words. Do you find it? Uh implausible that the scales have some kind of linguistic reality to them or do you, are you really um, cautious about assuming something that might not be necessary on the grounds of parsimony what i'm what i'm hoping for um is that i mean we do need something like scales but at the moment it's very much unclear where these scales come from uh, but i would hope and i think there's also some evidence to show that the, the source of these scales is not so much the language. Uh, there's, there must be something else. It seems to me that general cultural expectations, i.e. expectations that are part of the, of your general, of the, the general background that speaker and hero share, that those have something to do with what in this literature, to, literature is called scales. So, for instance, one, one clear example has to do with uh, with certain basic what's called basic level common common nouns. To illustrate this, uh, consider the following sentence: If I say, "This morning I saw a dog on the lawn," there's nothing. You don't get any particular kind of inference there. Um, but now compare this to: uh, "This morning I saw an animal on the lawn." That sounds a bit odd. I mean, it sounds as if you don't know what kind of animal you saw or you don't know anymore what kind of animal you saw. So uh, the use of the word animal as opposed to the word dog clearly makes a difference. I don't think that's th that difference is of a linguistic nature. Um, I believe that the difference between those, those two words in this particular context has something to do with uh, more general expectations of specificity. There, there seems to be a kind of general expectation that if you introduce if you introduce an animal, you at the very least should say what kind of animal it is. And in the same way, if you talk about a particular piece of furniture and you know that it's a chair, then you're supposed to call it a chair. Right? To 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 go to at least that level of specificity. Whereas conversely, in the dog example, even though we have words for different breeds of dogs, exactly. you're not necessarily expected to use them. Exactly. Uh, and I don't think it's plausible to assume that the, this type of uh, information or this type of expectation is part of the linguistic system. Uh, I think it's part of your general culture or, 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 some, or something like that. Um, it's not part of the language. So what I'm hoping for is, an, is a notion of scales or something like it which treats scales not as linguistic entities, 
but as, as, as information that comes from outside the language uh, and is used in uh, pragmatic reasoning. Jumping ahead slightly, uh, you, when you criticise defaultism in, in chapter 5, you mentioned that you're interested in why it's an intuitively appealing idea. Uh-huh. This seems to tie into this question, that the, there's a sense in which these, these entities may not be quite, things like scales, may not be quite the um, explanatory devices that their advocates think they are, but nevertheless there's some, you feel that there's some analogue of them which is, in some sense, psychologically real. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, uh, the, the story about defaultism is, um, it, go, it, it goes back to, uh, to a point that I, that I made a number of times before. It's pretty clear that uh, in the past, researchers have assumed or have, have had this, this very strong intuition that, to go to the old example again, uh, not all is part of the meaning of some, and that's also what underlies this notion of uh, uh, of this default theory of scalar implicatures. So the idea uh, behind that theory is that uh, if you hear the word some, this not all inference is triggered automatically, which mode, which mode would make perfect sense if it was part of the lexical meaning or the lex- lexical content of the word. But in contrast to other types of lexical meaning. This is a, is a meaning component that can be cancelled. So this is really an attempt to explain uh, the observations that we talked about before, namely that uh, scalar implicages are cancelable. But it is explained in a non-pragmatic way. If you assume that, uh, that this, this inference is part of the meaning of the word, but it has a special status, it can be cancelled. And that's where the notion of a default comes from. So the idea is that some... Uh, normally would imply uh, not all, uh, it, by virtue of its uh, of its lexical meaning, but this this uh, uh, this inference has a special status. It is cancelable. It it can it's defeasible. Uh, but this implies that that uh, normally speaking, if not if you don't have evidence to the contrary, you will make the inference, and that's what's called a default theory of uh, of scalar implication. But, the, but the, the underlying intuition is, seems to be that not all is really part of the meaning of some in some way or other. What's interesting here is that this default view is focuses on, or, or the corollary of this view is that uh, normally speaking, so in most cases basically, a sentence which contains some should, com- should uh, imply that the corresponding claim with all is not true according to the speaker. Uh, and in the meantime, since since the, the early 90s, uh, uh, people working in psychology have been trying to show uh, uh, or have shown uh, that this doesn't seem to be correct. Okay? So various experiments have been reported which show or seem to show uh, that this default view is not correct. That is to say... It's, it's simply not the case that if, you present, that if you go into a lab and present hearers with a sentence like Mary ate some of the cookies, that they will standardly and blindly and automatically uh, infer that according to the speaker, she didn't eat all of the cookies. So this default, I think there's now a consensus in the literature that the, this, this default view on, uh, on scalar implicatures is, is wrong. And that raises the question, where does this intuition come from? People, many people have been assuming, even basically without argument, that there is this, this very strong tendency to infer not all from some. What, I'm, what I suggest in the book uh, is that um, this intuition is basically an artifact of the way people in linguistics, but also in, in philosophy, uh, collect data. And so in, 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 in these disciplines, it's standard to ask yourself what a sentence means. That is, you present a sentence to yourself, and then you ask yourself, what would I infer from this sentence if it was, was uttered on, on this particular occasion, or if it was uttered out of the blue, or whatever. So um, the, uh, a prime source for linguistic data uh, in, in, uh, uh, in, the, in the literature that is to say, mainly in philosophy and in uh, in in, 
In linguistics, is introspection. You, ask, you consult your own intuitions about what the sentence means. Now, to get back to, to the kind of examples that, that uh, we've been talking about, if you do that with this particular example, something weird happens. And so here's the scenario. So you're a researcher and you're interested in the meaning and, and the inferences associated with a sentence like, uh, Mary ate some of the cookies. And what you do is the following. You present the sentence to yourself. That is to say, you conjure up uh, some sort of abstract context in which that's, this sentence is uttered. And then you ask yourself, would I have inferred in such a context that according to the speaker, Mary didn't eat all of the cookies? But that means that way of phrasing the, uh, the issue, or that way of phrasing uh, or, or trying to obtain your data, does something with the context that you're that you're conjured, that you've conjured up because what you're assuming now is simply by asking this question you're making it relevant to decide whether or not Mary ate all of the cookies that is to say you're imagining a context in which that is a relevant goal in in which that is something you want to know and that's part of the reason why you get this inference in the first place my claim is that the, the intuition that, that many people have that uh, have had that, that these are default inferences has to do with the way they have collected their data. Um, that is to say, uh, they've, they've, been looking, they've been using uh, introspection to, to make observations about sentence meanings and the inferences that you, that you derive from sentences and so on. In the last two chapters, you talk about embedded implicatures, or so-called embedded implicatures, I should say, uh, which have been a particular bone of contention as regards uh, default versus Christian contextual approaches. Right. Is there is there more going on within that domain than simply than simply reinforcing, as you argue, the inadequacies of the default account? But this is not just about the default account. It, 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 so the default account is just one variation on a more general theme. And the general theme is, is the idea that, that um, what, what I think are pragmatic inferences are really part of the linguistic system, part, either in a lexicon or somehow the result of certain grammatical operations and so on. The, the labels that I give, or the label that I give to this type of idea in the book is conventionalism. So, um, uh, conventionalism in this con context stands for, for the basic idea that, uh, scalar inferences and other, uh, inferences of the same sort are really part of the linguistic system, are part of the lexicon, are part of the grammar. And, and defaultism is just one variation on that theme. But the, the range of theories in, in, in that part of the playing field is, is, is a bit broader than that. The reason why embedded implicatures are of interest is the following. Uh, so you have, to, you have two types of view. On, on one type, so we, we're talking about one, one particular class of inferences. And according to one view, these inferences originate in the linguistic system. For instance, in the meanings of certain words. Let's, let's stick to the simplest, to, to, to that view because it's the simplest. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the pragmatic view, um, uh, according to which these inferences are Gricean in nature. These two views make very different predictions about what should happen if you take a word like some and put it into a context or into a sentence in which it is uh, in the scope of uh, uh, a negation, like not, for instance. Um, so take the original example again. Mary ate some of the cookies. If you embed that into a bigger sentence, like Fred believes that Mary ate some of the cookies, or it's possible that Mary ate some of the cookies, or it's not the case that Mary ate some of the cookies, that's the kind of sentences that we're talking about now. And the two accounts make very different predictions about these sentences. Uh, and it's perhaps clear to appreciate uh, when we start with the conventional, conventionalist account uh, first, 
that type of account predicts that since the, these inferences are part of the meaning of the word sum, so I'm, 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 going, I'm stick, still sticking to the simplest case, then if you put these um, uh, sentences with sum in it into a larger context, uh, then that should have an effect on the meaning of the sentence. So a sentence like, John believes that Mary ate some of the cookies, so it should mean uh, John believes that Mary ate some but not all of the cookies, simply because some means some but not all, or because more generally because this, this inference is, is attached to the word. So this particular prediction seems to be correct. But you also get something like the following. If you take a conditional sentence like, if Mary ate some of the cookies, she will have to be punished. Uh, that should mean, on the simplest version of the conventionalist account, it should mean something like, if Mary ate some but not all of the cookies, she should be punished. And that doesn't seem to be correct. So, so this type of view has consequences. So my main point is not that, that, that it's not right now that one observation seems to, one prediction is correct and the other isn't. The main point is that um, that conventionalist view makes predictions about what should happen with the meanings of, of uh, sentences that, are, that have some embedded in them. And the pragmatic view makes different predictions. The pragmatic view predicts in cases like these, it generally predicts that the, uh, you, didn't, you shouldn't get the, the sum but not all inference at all. Uh, and that's something that you can test. That is to say, you can set up an experiment and then give people sentences and try to elicit responses which show what kind of interpretations they get for these sentences. Uh, and that's in large part what, uh, what the last two chapters are about, right? to review the experimental evidence and to argue uh, on, on that basis that by and large, uh, the experimental evidence that we have suggests uh, that the conventionalist view is wrong and that the pragmatic uh, view is correct. That's, that's uh, the basic story. Our time here is nearly up. Um, I'd like to conclude by asking quite a general question about where you see the field going. You remark, for example, at the end of chapter two that you don't expect to see a, an entirely satisfactory theory of relevance, which is relevant to these issues in your lifetime. In your afterword, you call for a discourse-based extension to the theory of implicature, mm -hmm. for more work on processing, for more experiments. Uh, what are the priorities as far as you're concerned? How do you see the field advancing? Well, the, the, you mentioned the, and a number of the more pressing issues. I mean, relevance is, is clearly one of the most worrying ingredients that any theory of pragmatics is going to need. Right? Um, so you generally hear us make inferences about what the, the speaker believes and what he wants and so on on the basis of the assumption that, that the speaker is trying to make a relevant contribution to the discourse or to the conversation. Uh, and so far, uh, this notion of relevance is very poorly understood. And the, the heart of the problem, it seems to me, is that relevance has uh, is basically uh, about world knowledge as opposed to linguistic knowledge. And so far, we don't have any very good theories about uh, uh, world knowledge. I mean, we know that people have lots of it. I mean, if you, if you try to make a list of all the things you know about the world that you live in, then you will get a very long list. But it's, it's so far, nobody has been able to show what kind of patterns you have in, in, in world knowledge and what kind of inferences or, or how you draw inferences on the basis of world knowledge and so on. Uh, so that, that's the problem of relevance. Um, and I'm still skeptical that we're going to be able to solve that in, in the near future. I'm not even convinced that we know what kind of answer we should expect to this question, what is relevance. Okay, so that's one issue. Another issue is that, as you see so often in semantics and pragmatics and, and in linguistics more generally, I suppose it's the same in, in, in other fields of academia. So far, most researchers, and, and I'm no exception, have focused their attention on one particular kind of, uh, of pragmatic inference. Very little is known about how these inferences interact with other pragmatic phenomena, or more generally, 
with other phenomena that have to do with the interpretation of linguistic utterances. And I, um, uh, in my book, I, I discuss one example and I show that uh, if you look at the interaction between uh, between the, 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 the pragmatic inferences that, are, that, that, that the book is about uh, and so-called anaphoric processes, so which, which have to do with establishing links of co-reference within a discourse, then you can make all sorts of interesting predictions about certain sentences involving quantity implicatures or scalar, scalar implicatures. But that's really the tip of the iceberg. Um, and, and much more work needs to be done, I think more generally, about the interaction between various interpretative processes, and that includes quantity implicatures. So these are clear, clearly two points that, uh, uh, that, that need more work. And the second one is one where I can see that, that some progress will be made in, in the near future. And as I said, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about, about relevance and all this happening. But more generally, uh, I think the Gricean notion of conversational implicature is much broader than uh, quantity implicatures. So, um, uh, and it's a bit of a pity that uh, so far there has been so much work on quantity implicatures, and most of that is about one particular type of quantity implicature, namely scalar implicatures. That's the, the, the sum not all case. And I really believe that we should broaden our views, and that we should also start looking seriously uh, at other types of, uh, of conversational implicatures, uh, which, uh, which are probably harder to understand, but that's exactly one reason for having a closer look at them. Are we to expect another book from you on the topic of not quantity implicatures? Yeah, it's that's an option. And uh, one of the things that I'm interested in currently is has to do with uh, the interpretation of speech acts uh, and the inference that you the, the indirect inferences that you that you draw from speech acts. Um, uh, and I've, I, I've, so for instance, if I tell you uh, you're standing on my foot. Then what I'm, my, my speech act just tells you that it gives you information. Right? It tells you, um, it informs you of the fact that you're standing on my foot. But clearly, that's the, the reason why I'm telling you this is that is that I want you to uh, uh, to stop doing so, and that's called an indirect speech act. So indirectly, it's a, it's a request, uh, and that's a kind of conversational implication, and that's one of the things that we. I mean, it's well known that, that indirect speech acts exist, uh, but the mechanics uh, of, uh, so the underlying system uh, and the underlying reasoning uh, that yields indirect speech acts um, uh, is very poorly understood. So that's, that's the kind of interest, the kind of thing that I'm interested in right now. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. But in the meantime, I'm going to say, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I've been talking to Bart Hertz about his book, Quantity Implicatures. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.